Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from September 20th by Pastor Randy, titled, Dealing with Difficult People, Part 4. So hypocrites, nobody likes a hypocrite. Hypocrites don't even like hypocrites. Uh, When you hear about the politician who talks about the poor people and their concern for the poor and and how their heart just goes out to them, and then you find out their tax returns have, have been made public, and they only give two or $300 a year to, to charity. You think, that's kind of hypocritical. Or a few years ago, when Newt Gingrich was so critical of President Clinton and, and him being unfaithful to his wife, and it was found out a little while later that during that same period of time, Newt Gingrich was being unfaithful to his wife. Uh, sort of hypocritical. And that's what hypocrites do. They do not practice what they preach. Uh, Hypocrites will hold other people to standards that they're not willing to live up to themselves. Uh, Carl Rowan, he was a uh, editorial, uh, wrote editorial for newspapers, a columnist, and he wrote a scathing editorial about private gun ownership in the NRA. Then it was found out just like two or three days later, he had shot an intruder that was in his house. So apparently having guns was okay for him, just not for everybody else. But that's hypocrisy. That's what hypocrites do. Hypocrites hold other people to a standard that they're not willing to live up to themselves. Now, here's the thing. Most would say that the number one area that Christians are hypocritical in today is morality. Because that gets the most press. You know, Jerry Falwell, stuff like that. That's what gets the press. But I believe by far... By far the number one area that Christians are hypocrites today is in the area of dealing with difficult people. It's what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. It used to be that 30, 40 years ago, the number one scripture that people knew in our culture here in America was John 3.16. But then that switched a few years ago. Now the number one scripture that people know in our culture is Matthew 7, 1, do not judge lest you be judged. You let Christians take a moral stand on anything, and people stand up and say, but you're not supposed to judge. Don't tell me sex before marriage is wrong. You're not supposed to judge. Don't tell me that, that homosexuality is wrong. You're not supposed to judge. But what they fail to realize, and what some of us Christians fail to realize, is that there, there are several different words for judge in the Greek language. One means to condemn and to criticize. The other means to evaluate and analyze. Now, that type of judgment that leads to condemning and criticizing, that we should never do. But that type of judgment that leads to to distinguishing good and evil, to to analyze and evaluate, that's the type of judgment we should always do. Here's a verse of Scripture in Hebrews. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish or judge, your translation may have, between good and evil. That's what we are supposed to be about. And so what I want to do today, the first part of this sermon, is sort of talk about that. Because this type of of coming across difficult people and and judging and and criticizing and condemning plays right into the second half of the Romans 12 that we've been looking at. So let's first go to this scripture in in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and look at it today. Here's what we read in verse 1. Do not judge which I know that's so hard for for some of you because 
that, that critical spirit just sort of rises up inside of you. It's just hard to resist. But he says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. And my first question is, okay, so won't be judged by who? Judged by God? Judged by others? Well, Jesus doesn't really say because that's not his point. Jesus' point is this. When you judge other people, be careful because it's coming back in your direction. It's going to bounce back and come back to you. In fact, he emphasizes this again in the next verse, in verse 2. He says, For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure that you use. See, the judges will say this, But I'm right. They're messed up. They have issues. And Jesus is saying, Look, I'm just letting you know. Just letting you know. Whenever you judge other people, the same way you judge other people, that's going to come back in your direction. I'm just giving you a heads up. That's all I'm doing. So this begs the question, how do you want other people to judge you? Now, I know how I want other people to judge me. I want them to cut me a lot of slack when they judge me. I want people to, to sort of try and take into account the whole situation and the whole story. You know, it's because Randy grew up sort of isolated, living out in the country by himself, and all of a sudden he moves to New Orleans like a whole different world down there, a whole different country almost. And, and the reason I messed up here was because of dot, dot, dot. The reason I made me sick here was because of dot, dot, dot. See, when I want people to judge me, I want them to take in everything in, into account. I want them to hear my entire story. I want them to, to know all the, uh, the, the stuff surrounding the event. So you let me talk long enough, and I promise you, I'll have Jesus and everybody else in here. You'll come put your arms around me and say, oh, poor Randy, you're such an idiot. I can't believe that, that you turned out so well. No wonder you had this issue. No wonder you have this. And I just can't believe that, that despite all this, that, that, the obstacles that you had in your life, that you turned out so well. See, when I want people to judge me, I want them to take into account the whole story. And God says, okay, that's fine. And that's how I want you to judge other people. Golden rule. Do unto others you'd have them do unto you. And then next, verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Why do you look at the splinter, which is a symbolic way of saying a problem? Why are you looking at that problem in your brother's eye, but, but you ignore the, the big problem, the big issue in, in your eye. And I know the answer to that, and you know the answer to that too. What problem? I don't have a problem. That's what we say, right? But Jesus is hinting at something that we all ignore whenever we're dealing with difficult people. That when you find something in somebody else that you want to criticize their values or who they are or what to do, something that you want to condemn and criticize, when, when you see somebody in somebody else's life where that wells up inside of you, that should trigger, should trigger something in you that goes, what's in my life that I need to work on? But we don't go there very often, do we? That's not what happens. So Jesus sort of repeats the same thing again, verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Look, there's a splinter, that, that little bitty splinter, but you ignore the beam in your own eye. Whenever you see something in somebody else, and you feel so justified in saying something about it, 
When you feel like you're entirely right and it's in your rights, you have to condemn it. You have to criticize. You need to stand up and point out where they're wrong at. That should cause you to then first look in the mirror and see what's going on in your life. So, he says in verse 5, Hypocrite. What's a hypocrite in this context? A hypocrite is somebody who looks at somebody else's issues and ignores what's going on in their own life. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly take the splinter out of your brother's eye. You really care about that speck in their eye, don't you? You really care about that issue that you see in their life, don't you? Well, first, condemn them? No. First, criticize them? No. First, gossip about them? No. First, do what? First, look in the mirror. Why well, don't want to look in the mirror? They're the ones with the problem that you know of. But they have a problem. Yes. And I need to prepare you so that you can go and help them out. So listen. If you are too confident in your own position to do that, to look in the mirror first, if you're too insecure to do that, if you're too self-righteous to do that, you are a hypocrite. That's what Jesus is saying. Would you at least admit with me that Jesus is saying that the sin of the critic is larger than the person who he's criticizing? The sin of the person who he's criticizing. Do you see that in the illustration? The sin of the critic is larger than the person that you're criticizing. So he said, first, first do what? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to, to, to deal with what's going on in their life. Oh, so they have a problem. Jesus never said they didn't have a problem. But if you try and deal with somebody's issue by your pointing that out, by your being critical, by your condemning it, you're not going anywhere with that. You're just going to have an argument. If all you want to do is point out people's issues... That's not going to lead to a solution at anywhere, at any point in time. You're just going to have an argument, and nobody will let themselves lose an argument. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody, and 20 minutes later, they say, you know, you're completely right. I'm completely wrong. I'm going on your side now. I'm sorry I was so wrong. That's never happened, and it never will. Jesus When he was here, he could have pointed out everybody's issue, couldn't he? He could have said where everybody was wrong at. <sighs> wrong thought. What you did last night was wrong. That word you said a while ago, that was wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. And he would have been right, but nobody would have followed him. Because all that all type of judgment does is just push people away. And parents of teenagers, you know this. You can push your child away, not because you're wrong about their behavior, but because you never take care of the log that's in your own eye. So, before we go to, as we look at Romans 12, the question that we, that we need to ask ourselves is, how do we deal with difficult people without becoming a hypocrite? How do we deal then with, people, with difficult people? People have issues in their life. 
People, things that's going on we don't like. They have values, they have positions, they have things that we don't like. How do we deal with that? That's what Romans 12 is teaching us. So let's get there. How do we deal with that? Number one, this is what we said before, you must manage your mouth. You have to deal with what you're, what you're going to say. You don't, you don't uh, go back. Uh, okay, well, here's the verse. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. It's not that you say nothing. It's not that you retaliate back. It's you, you bless them. You say something good to them. See, here's the truth. That you need to hear this. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The reason God lets you see issues in other people's lives the reason he lets you see uh, the difficulties other people are having, the, the, the wrong values or the wrong issues that they have in their life, is not so you can point them out and criticize them. It's so you can learn how to pray for them. The reason God allows you to see the junk that somebody else has going on in their life is so you can intercede for them and overcome that with kindness. So first, manage your mouth. Don't let insult come out for insult don't let a curse come out for for a curse instead bless them and then second of all become an intentional understander here's the next uh two verses rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another do not be proud instead associate with the humble do not be wise in your own estimation become an intentional understander so so you understand what they're feeling and also what they're thinking In John chapter 13, where Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, he chose to wash their dirty feet rather than expose them. Because he could expose all the wrongness in the room. Judas, what you're about to do is wrong. Peter, you're going to betray me. That's really wrong. Rest you, you're going to be a bunch of cowards and run away. That's wrong. He could expose all the wrongness in the room. But what did he choose to do instead? He chose to serve them instead. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So you can't look down on somebody when you're washing their feet. It's hard to be critical of somebody when you're washing their feet. And so you become that intentional understander, understanding what they feel, weep with those who weep, rejoice those who rejoice, understanding what they're thinking. And third... Or the next verse, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to give thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. When you repay good for evil, not only does that impact that other person, but the whole world sees that, and you're able to do what's good in everyone's eyes. And the next thing is this, learn to repay belongs to God. We talked about that last week. Vengeance is not a, uh, well, the verses, I'm sorry, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. That's Romans 12, 18 and 19. It's not that vengeance is a bad thing. It's just it's not our thing. We talked about that last week. Now we come to this week, the last one. Number four, never underestimate the power of kindness. And here's the verses with that. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. It's possible to conquer with kindness. Francis of Assisi 
He said, at all times, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. See, sometimes, in some cases, words aren't going to help. Words aren't going to do anything. They're not going to uh, push anything forward. Like I said a while ago, nobody will allow themselves to lose an argument. You've got to have deeds instead of words. Because nobody is going to say, after 20 minutes, oh, you're totally right and I was totally wrong. So this is where these two verses come into play. Let's look at the first thing that he's saying to do. Make a list of your enemy's needs. That's what he says. If they're hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give them something to drink. You're making a list of what your enemy needs. That's the first thing you do when you're in conflict with another person. What do they need? Because it may be that what they need is a source of their irritability that's going on. Remember when Paul was flogged and thrown into the, to the bottom of the, the prison and he's in shackles, the earthquake happens, the shackles come off, and all of a sudden the, the chief guard, he looks down, he realizes what's going on. That's Paul's enemy who's thrown him into prison. He's probably one who's in charge of flogging him. But what does he say? What does my enemy need? First thing he needs, he needs to know we haven't escaped because he's about to kill himself thinking that. Second thing he needs to know is that we're not bitter against him. The third thing he needs to know is my God. And the rest is history. So you find out what your enemy needs. And then what do you do next? Be prepared to realize that what your enemy needs, you're capable of supplying. Remember the Good Samaritan? That's his enemy in a ditch. That, that's a Jew that, that they don't get along. That's his enemy. He comes across him and says, Whoa, he needs medicine. I've got oil. He needs transportation. I've got a donkey. He needs a room and a place to stay. I've got a friend with a room and I've got some money to pay him. You have to think, what does your enemy need that I have? Usually, I, the text implies that you have what your enemy needs. Here's another verse that shows the same thing. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another. Now, it's implying that you have an opportunity to do that. You have an opportunity to supply what they need. Back when the Civil War was over, as the news reached the White House, the Capitol, that it had ended, it's time to celebrate. But Lincoln wanted the people in the South to know that he was not going to treat them as enemies anymore, but wanted to treat them as fellow citizens, as, as, as his friends. And so, in starting the celebration, he has the band to play something. And they start, paying, start to play the battle hymn of the Republic. He said, no, 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 I want you to play Dixie. They didn't have the music to Dixie. So they fumble through and figure out how it goes, and they start playing Dixie. And what he was doing, he was sending a clear signal to the South that, that I'm not going to treat you as, as rebels. I'm not going to be involved in some cold war with you, but I'm going to treat you as fellow citizens. Realize that what your enemy needs, you are able to provide. It may take some, some creative thinking, but, but, but what the, the scriptures are suggesting is that you have the ability to provide that for them. And then third, wake your enemy's conscience with no strings attached kindness. That's what it means when it says that you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't mean that, oh, by being kind to your enemy, you're going to make them completely miserable. Uh, kind of goes against the passage, doesn't it? The, the whole idea there, the whole context. But what this means is re- when you return good for evil, you prick the conscience 
of, of that person, of your enemy, of that per, the difficult person in your life. You prick their conscience and, and, and you're able then to penetrate their heart by your good deeds. That's what he's talking about doing here. And when he talks about the word a heap burning coals on her head, it may take more than one act of kindness. Back several years ago, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not there anymore. There's a florist on Benson, and they had the little sign out front, you know, we changed the letters and all that stuff uh, every week. And I was driving by there, and I read the sign. It just, it just cracked me up. It said this, we have the keys to your doghouse. Meaning, you know, guys, you're in trouble with your wife. Get her some flowers. Get off the couch. Get back in the bedroom. Now, that's true if maybe you said a harsh word that morning before you left for work or something. That's true if you had a little tiff. But if you've been abusing your wife for years, one bouquet of flowers is not going to fix that. It's going to take a lot of acts of kindness, isn't it? It may take weeks or months or even a year of kind deed after kind deed after kind deed. And that's what he's implying here. You keep, you pour, keep pouring that on until you prick their conscience, until it penetrates their heart. And then, let's back up this last verse. Let's get, get to the right. Right place. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Be convinced of the power of good. The best way to make an evil world better is not to give them a dose of their own medicine, not to give them evil back in return, but to give them something they've never tasted before, and that's the kindness of God. See, that's what we've been called to do. That's what we're supposed to be a part of. Let's look at this verse again in 1 Peter. For you were called to this. Do you understand how, what he means? This is basic to Christianity. This is basic to what we're supposed to be about. You were called for this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he didn't insult back. He didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. In other words, when we were enemies of God, he didn't seek to get even. He didn't ignore us. He chose to be a blessing to us instead, and that's what He has called us to do. So I'll say again, how you respond when you're insulted, how you respond when, when somebody does something against you and tries to hurt you, how do you respond to a difficult person whose values and morals may be completely opposite of your own, how you respond is one of the most significant things you will ever do as a Christian because it shows you get it. It shows you understand that we've been called to do for other people what God has done for us. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said this, he said, to be great is to be misunderstood. Yeah, I get that. Noah was called crazy. Joseph was called 
you know, his brother said, here comes the dreamer. Moses, you know, the, the, the Hebrew who came with Moses said, you're going to kill me like you did that Egyptian? Yeah, to be great is to be misunderstood. But a contemporary of Emerson, Albert Hubbard, he said, no, being misunderstood is no sign of greatness. A sign of greatness is being able to be misunderstood without resentment. Where you don't feel like you've got to get even. Where you don't feel like you have to get back. See, it's real easy to fall into the temptation to retaliate, to criticize. Real easy. But what is it that we're going to do if we're not going to be hypocritical? We're going to first examine our own hearts. Let me just ask you a question. If every time it started well up on you to say that word of criticism, to, to say that, that, that word, of, that insult back, to, to, to want to hurt somebody else the way they hurt you, if every time a criticism came your way or you saw something in somebody else's life you saw as a fault, if every time it well up on you to, to address that, instead you stopped and you did something, you fixed something that was going on in your own life, you let God examine your heart and you did something about it, how often would you be criticizing I'll tell you what, you'd be criticizing a lot less, you'd be a lot closer to God, wouldn't you? Because you'd be doing a lot of things. And if you want to sit there and keep criticizing other people without first looking at what's going on in your own life, you're a hypocrite. You don't get the gospel. You don't understand what God has done for us and called us to. So, Make changes in your own life first. Find out what your enemy needs and bless them with that. And may the, the sin of the critic die in all of us. Perhaps maybe a hypocritical person, someone judged you and that's what's kept you out of the church or kept you from committing your life to Christ. It's time for you to say, somebody else may have done that to me, but that's not what I'm going to let penetrate my heart. I'm going to let the gospel penetrate my heart. I'm going to say again, Christians are hypocritical in this area more than any other in how we're dealing with difficult people. And as we see the tension in our culture grow and grow and grow like it's doing right now, the temptation, they want to criticize us, we can give it right back. They want to insult us, we'll insult back. You know, we're just going to do it. And, and, and as we tend to fight Difficult people with the world's weapons, we lose the strength of the gospel. We lose that which is meant to, to identify us at the core of who we are because we've been called to this. We've been called to this. Don't get caught up in this in our culture. Refuse it. Refuse it. And what you will find out 
and you respond the right way, you find out what your enemy needs, you supply it, you let those acts of kindness prick their conscience, penetrate their heart, and you will understand the power of good. The power of good. That good really can't overcome evil. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.